0: You're listening to the Audio Sermon Podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served Marble Falls and the Greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday morning at 9 and 1030 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. For those who find themselves unable to attend on a Sunday morning, we stream those services, Simply visit fbcmf.live during either of our service times to view it. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.
1: Well, um, good stories are captivating. Good stories are life-changing. They they draw you into the characters. Um, they introduce you to someone at the very beginning and they begin to draw you into his or her personality and what they have been through. and and uh, good stories then bring you into this moment that is a crisis, uh, uh, a tragedy in the middle of the story, and then it and and you get to be a part of this ride up to the moment of resolution. Um Good stories are exciting. Um, good stories can be found in in movies. They can be found in books, and they can be found in simply, Just somebody talking to you and sharing with you what has happened in their life good stories are life-changing when you hear them or when you experience them have you ever not liked somebody until you heard their story have you ever experienced somebody and they just kind of got all over you Uh, it was a struggle being around them you didn't like the tone in which they talked you didn't like what they said but then you sit down You, you felt in your life you know what that's about the most crotchety person I've ever met uh, Ross, please don't ever put me on a committee or a ministry team with that person, and then you wind up on one with them And uh, because I put you there, and, uh, and, and, and you, you stay for a second after the meeting, and the person shares with you. Um, something that happened in his or her life. They talk to you about that moment of growing up and uh, the divorce that happened that changed them. Or they talk to you about that loss or that issue. And it starts to, your heart turns tender a little bit, doesn't it? It, There's a paradigm shift in your life. Why? Because of a story. Stories are life-changing. We build our lives on them. We, we hold to the stories of our past in a way that, that, that helps us move forward within that narrative ourselves. For instance, uh, if you were a Jew, it didn't matter if you actually lived through the moment of the great exodus. You lived in the story of the great exodus and, and God parting the Red Sea for you and, and giving you water from the rock. And you lived through that. Um, you live it as if you were really there because that story becomes yours. That story changes you you tell it over and over again the bible is a story it is the grand narrative of god's redemptive work and his intention and in creation and all through the story of the bible there are little stories little sub stories that are told all along the way that help develop and move along the plot the theology the movement of god throughout scripture and jesus tells a lot of these little sub stories and they're called often called parables and and so as we look at these parables know this that that when jesus tells them he doesn't give a parable the way that a a philosophical kind of um, preacher or a philosophy professor might talk about things Jesus is not going to speak over your head or over my head. He's not, his intention is not to give complex kind of words so that at the end of the parable, everybody sits back and says, we have no idea what he said, but it sure sounded intelligent. He must really be important. He's not like one of those kinds of preachers. The, the purpose of the parables is to give a very commonplace kind of illustration about something. Uh, it, it meets you where you are. It takes a story that you have experienced in life, or at least you've seen in life, And it relates that story to what you are going through. And Luke, at one point, he begins to recount one of the parables that Jesus begins sharing with a very large crowd that's there with him. I like how it begins because Jesus is just preaching to a large crowd and all of a sudden he is interrupted and a man comes and he says, I have an issue and I, I find it unique because I wonder sometimes how many uh, times do I come in here and begin preaching on something, but on your, in your mind, um, you're dealing with something else, and what you wish you could do in the middle of my sermon is raise your hand and interrupt and say, Ross, Everything you're saying is all well and good, but I have an issue, and here is my issue. Can you please address this? Many times some of you might come in and and feel that, where I'm talking about who knows what, but in your mind you're like, golly, I can't even think about what he's talking about. Here is my issue. Thank y'all for not interrupting me, though, when when y'all have those moments in your mind. Jesus is interrupted. He's teaching and somebody says, yes, 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 Here's what I think, though. Here's what I need you to help me with. I have an issue. And here is my issue, Jesus. Teacher, make, not ask, make my older brother divide our inheritance with me. Now, disputes over inheritance have always been very messy, they're messy today. They're hard even right now. There are some lawyers who make a very good living helping arbitrate simply in in inheritance issues. In the time of Jesus, the older sibling, the older son, had all the control to take his father's, um, uh, to take what his father leaves all the family, and he had all the control to divide that between all the family, and I'm okay with that. Um, I'm the older sibling. I I have no problem... (laughs) with the story to, to that point. Um, the, and it's the struggle of inheritance that's played out. We, we see it in the, the prodigal son. We see it, isn't there an issue of inheritance with Jacob and Esau? The issue of inheritance plays a central role throughout a lot of scripture. What they would do is the oldest sibling would get either two thirds or half of the whole estate And then he would arbitrate or he would delegate the rest of whatever was left over between all of the other siblings. And and, and if you had a good older brother, then it went really well. The the issue is, sometimes when your siblings don't get along, then, then the moment of inheritance and dividing all that up is really, really hard. If you haven't gotten along with your brothers or sisters for 20 years... And you're not even talking to one another you're not on talking terms with an older brother or a younger brother or somebody and 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 it is a dysfunctional family situation man when somebody when the parent dies and and everybody is crying and you're sad that's not going to fix the 30 years of dysfunction that that comes to that funeral it's hard uh, if, if you and your siblings are great and you talk all the time and uh, you, you just have this wonderful, healthy kind of relationship, then then, then you deal with inheritance pretty well. But, but some of you in here right now, you may have crazy siblings. <laughs> and, and it's hard, man. And because of that, if, if you are involved in this kind of thing and your older sibling, who's the crazy one, says you don't get anything or, or, or the younger ones are fighting for things. And it is a, it's a battle. Uh, and it can be that way. Um, Max Copeland, a wonderful pastor in our church for 42 years, uh, the reason that our church is healthy a lot is because of Brother Max. And uh, M- Max shared with me a great story that, that he was asked to do a funeral, a graveside service for someone. And he, and he said, well, why don't we do it at the church or the funeral home? And they said, well, because we hate each other. <laughs> and, and, and they said, we can't do the funeral. Any place. Let's just get it over with as fast as we can. Let's just go out to the graveside as quickly as possible and get this thing over with. And Max said, okay, and sure enough, he's, he's doing something, he's trying to move fast, and two brothers get into a barroom fist fight. Max said, dude, they were, they were fighting hard. He said, I'm glad they didn't roll into the grave. He said, it took all of us and the funeral home directors to pull these dudes apart. It was horrible, fighting over these types of things. In the first few verses, this young sibling comes to Jesus and he says, make my brother share with me, give me my, my what's due me. And, and I admit that when I first read this, I'm siding with the younger brother. I haven't read the rest of the passage yet, but just at the ask alone, I'm, I'm on his side because I'm a justice guy. I, I think things need to be fair, don't y'all? If this older brother's cheating this younger brother, my goodness, Something needs to be done. I'm for the younger brother right here at the beginning. And and, and they didn't have lawyers to help fix it. Jesus is the only guy he can turn to. And he goes to the only guy he can turn to. Jesus, make this happen. And I'm thinking, yes, Jesus is going to tell the older brother what he needs to do. And Jesus is silent. And he doesn't do anything about it. Leaves them to deal with it on their own. Jesus says... No. Who made me an arbiter between you? And he turns his back. It's not the kind of Jesus that I accepted during vacation Bible school, perhaps. It's not the loving Jesus. Well what's going on, y'all? What why doesn't Jesus do something here with this guy? Uh, here's a guess. Before we move on and figure out the real reason, my my thought is, well, maybe Jesus just refuses to be triangulated, and I like that about Jesus. Anytime a third party comes or someone asks Jesus to be a third party, and he says, come and and fix something that's not right or fix something in my life, Jesus never does. You remember the time when Martha is in the kitchen banging all the cabinets around, mad at her sister Mary. And and she says, uh, Jesus, make my sister Mary get in the kitchen and help me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Mary is doing something good right here. In fact, Martha, if you have a problem with Mary, who do you need to talk to? Mary. Jesus had this, I, this thing about him that refused to be triangulated in conflicts that if somebody had a problem, he was never gonna go with that person behind somebody else's back. He encouraged people to solve problems by talking face to face. Maybe that's what it was or maybe it could be this, in fact. Maybe it's that when the guy comes and he says, make my brother do this, that the problem with that is, is, is that we don't go to God always talking about somebody else's issues. Uh, Well, what if the issue here is that Jesus turns his back because the guy is just, you know, selfish, I'm perfectly fine, but Jesus, you need to do something about my brother over here. He's the screwed up one. Do something about him. It's always better to come to God as a confessor rather than a complainer. And it's always better to come to God with a sense of humbleness, that, that, that you carry your own baggage to God and not somebody else's baggage. The Lord has a lot to say about looking for um, the, the plank in, I mean, the speck in somebody else's eye but, and not deal with the, the huge amount, the, the plank in your own eye. It, it's like the story of that guy who comes in to see the psychiatrist. You've heard me say this. He goes in to see the psychiatrist and he has a strip of bacon over one ear, a strip of bacon over the other ear and a, a boiled egg on his head. And he comes in and he says to the psychiatrist, I really need to talk to you about my brother over here. It's obvious, man. He needs to talk about himself. He has the issues. And maybe the thing is, is that the man is, is pointing to his brother when the reality is he needs to be thinking about himself. Maybe so, but y'all know we, we get to the real reason. That, that, that Jesus really turns his back and, and, and doesn't fix it. We find out why in verse 15. Uh, at this moment, I lose all sympathy for the younger brother. I was pulling for him. I wanted him to get it, but not anymore after verse 15. In verse 15, what we learn here is the real reason the man says what he does. Jesus uncovers his heart, uncovers his mind, the reality of what he's doing. And he's right there. The the text does not indicate that he's even left. And Jesus, even with him standing right there, turns to the rest of the crowd and pointing at this man. Jesus says, do y'all see this? Did everybody hear what he just asked me? I want you to take note, take care, and be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. What an embarrassing thing. What a helpful thing, though. Talk about an object lesson. <laughs> and Jesus did it. He was just, this man wasn't trying to get justice after all. He's just trying to get more and more and more, just trying to be greedy. And Jesus had a good, a good radar, he had a good nose for idolatry. Anytime somebody said something that kind of elevated something that's material or something that is not God, and begin to elevate it to godlike status, Jesus had a good nose for that kind of thing. That's called idolatry, and this man was taking something that was certainly not God, his inheritance, being greedy about it, and he was elevating it as if it is all important, as if it's an idol. In his life and Jesus realized that and, and Jesus had more to say about the first commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and 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 I am the Lord your God you shall have no other gods before me more to say about that one than he did all of the other nine put together he knew what idolatry looked like and what it sounded like and what it smelled like and this just smells like idolatry to Jesus and so the to the people he, he, he helps them to understand what greed and this idolatry of greed um, is like by giving them a story. So Jesus, tell us a story, okay? Once upon a time, there was a very rich man and he had a wonderful harvest, a bumper crop. His crops produced like they had never produced ever, but his silos and the barns that he had were not enough to fill with all of his crops. And so what he did was rather than sharing, rather than being grateful, he he assumed that it all belonged to him, and he said, I'm gonna build bigger and bigger barns, and then I'm going to have enough so that all the rest of my life, it says, you have many years left. He says it to himself, I have many years left. I'm gonna take it easy, and I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna party, I'm gonna do all of this. You know what, it's the kind of person, though, in our society that we hold up as the very successful kind of person, I think. The, the kind of people that are very successful early on, that make their millions early, and now they just kind of hang out. They, they, they're asked to... Uh, <laughs> it is funny. I agree with that laugh. Uh, they, they get all the book deals. They're asked to speak at, at, at big events. And um, the kind of person that, that achieves success... In life, and, uh, and, and now everybody thinks, Wow, we want you on our board of directors. We want you to be in charge of things, or, or, or if you run for office, we'll vote for you because you're successful. The person that, that Jesus calls a fool in our society, we would call awesome. We would call them successful. And Jesus looks at him, and so when everybody else is like, Man, what a guy! Look how huge his barns are. Man, he's, he, he has it going on. And, and, and Jesus says, you're a fool. And it demonstrates that God's culture is radically different from our culture. Radically different. What are all of the ways, when you read this about his, his words and what he does, what are all of the ways that you can identify that the person was a fool? Um, if you were gonna make a list and I were to ask you Write down all the foolish things in his life. I think the first thing that I would write down would be this. He's described of being a fool because there's no amount of material wealth that can give him what he's looking for. The, the ease in life, the peace. I'm going to take it easy. That, that means he's expecting to have a peaceful, easy life because he has all this. Y'all, is he right or wrong? He's wrong. Big time Wrong. I don't care how many barns he has stored up; it's not going to give him all the things he wants. We we all have hungers that that all the material possessions and money in the world it simply can't fill the hungers that we have. Like like money can't make somebody love you or cherish you. And we try you, what money could do maybe is rent a little bit of fake affection, but but it'll never ever. You can't buy love. And uh, you remember the old show, Citizen Kane? Um, in that movie, there's a man who's very powerful, rich. He's kind of the center of the story. And in that show, um, the, his wife comes to him at one point and says, I'm leaving you. And he says, you can't leave me. And she said, I'm going to leave you. And she walks out. And here's a guy who has a lot of money. He has servants. All around him he has a huge estate and yet all the money cannot help him to keep by his side somebody that he actually legitimately cares about money doesn't work like that you can't force another person to love you material things are a horrible foundation on which to build the most important things of your life uh, you remember when Jesus says be really careful about how you build your house, meaning how you build your life. Don't build it on sand, but build it on the rock. Uh, if you were to give, let's take that parable, that, or that saying, don't build your house on the sand, but build it on the rock. Let's take that and now let's, let's introduce a tragedy into your life. Let's say that you, um, a doctor gave you two weeks to live or two months to live. Or, or let's say that you heard from your spouse, as the man in Citizen Kane did, that your, 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 that your husband or your wife are walking out on you. I'm telling you, if you've built your house on the sand, then your whole life is about to crumble. It, it, and, and what the sand is, is all of the material possessions that you think are going to hold you up and think that are going to be great and give you all this security when, when, when difficulties come. And they don't, man. You can't build your life... On such a weak worthless foundation as that kind of thing if we place any material object on the altar of importance hoping that we're going to get what we need out of that thing then then we're going to be very very disappointed and it's not that wealth is evil nothing in the text suggests that wealth is evil and nothing in the text suggests that the man is evil he didn't get his stuff Um, by being uh, uh, unethical um, at all. What we see is he's not evil, y'all. He's just a fool in thinking that money can give to him and material possessions can give to him something that it simply cannot give to him. And what a foolish, foolish thing that is. We can't do it with our lifestyle. We can't do it with our words. We can't do it with anything. It's just really, really bad. But here's another thing. If I were to Say, what are the reasons that this man is a fool? Check this one out. I think he's a fool because he missed the delight that comes from being grateful in what he is given in this because he doesn't think he's been given anything. He thinks it's all due him and that he earned all of it. In fact, when I read this, how many times can you see the word I, my, mine? All throughout it, my crops, my stuff. It's all Here's what I picture. I picture some guy trying to get all of it to himself and he's guarding it like this. It's all his, right? He's, he, he, it's all due him. He earned all of this, right? He thinks it's all about what he accomplished in his life. Here's a guy who is exceedingly mistaken about that. He's mistaken to think that his own efforts are the only source of his success. Uh, An agronomist would say to him very quickly that when you farm, 95% of the success of a harvest doesn't come from what the farmer does, but it comes from what nature does. Only 5% of the success of the farm comes from what the farmer does. All of the soil, the miracle of the seed, all of the rain, all of those things, the sunshine, all of the things that it does, it doesn't matter how much a farmer cultivates and, and, and works the field. He can't do it unless, unless God does it, unless nature does it to bring forth all of this. Now, a farmer, when his back is hurting and when he's sweating and when he's been out there all day, he can begin to think that, that man, he is doing a whole lot more. But 95% of the harvest is because of what nature does, not the farmer. And which makes this story comical. It's comical to hear the farmer speaking in the story of I and me and mine as if his efforts have been the only factor attributing to the success of the abundant harvest. It's narcissism at its worst. Did, did you know that in Kentucky, the state of Kentucky is technically still called a common wealth? And and before you roll your eyes, all of us real capitalistic folks in here, uh, you know, commonwealth, no, 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 a commonwealth. The the term recognizes the profound truth, truth, that all wealth is actually more social than it is an individual reality. All truth, it's right. no one can acquire or even maintain great wealth apart from what other people have done for us and done with us. Think of the people who taught you how to read. Think of the people who taught you how to write and the people who taught you how to compute and people who taught you how to work. You see, it's a a group of people around you that work and help give you the skills and and give you a place to invest. Somebody says, well, I I just made good investments. Where did you invest? Did you create every single one of those companies? No, no, no. Did you, well, I own my own business. Do you work all by yourself or do you work with others? Well, I have employees, so they're helping? Yes. Well, who do you sell it to? I sell it to other people, so they're a part of it too. There's nothing, nothing. in this. it's impossible for anybody to to assert that all of my success is my own. I am a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. It is an illusion. It's the silliest thing. In fact, in this text, the Lord would say you're very close to being the rich fool when you say things like that. And that fact, y'all... It should be a reason for great celebration, in my opinion. The the reason to celebrate is when you realize that that you are one instrument player in the whole symphony that is your life and that God is the great conductor of it. That's reason to celebrate, not to lament. That, That other people play a role in your success and then you get to invite them into the success and celebrate with them. That's exciting, that now there's a reason for a party, but if you do it all by yourself, there is no reason for a party. That This is an exciting thing that we ought to embrace. That, and what it ought to make us do is to be gracious that for, for the immeasurable amount of help that we have all been given. And so the only proper response to the great harvest of our life Is genuine humility isn't it humility and and genuine gratitude And the fool the rich fool missed it completely I mean he just he swung and just whiffed he missed here's one last one in in the text here is why he's a fool as well I I think um, I think he's called a fool also because he wasn't generous with his harvest generosity is, is basic to being created in the image of God. Um, the Bible suggests that at the very beginning of the time before time, when God was all that there was, God thought to himself, you know what, we have a really thing going here called life and relationship. And so why don't we create a world and create people and, and, and allow All of creation to be in on this great thing that we have called life and that's the answer to the philosophical question why something and not nothing why does something exist rather than nothing exist? and the reason is because we have a generous God the reason of all creation is is because we have a God who shares and and out of a God who shares we are born to imitate and, and live like that and be like that. He's who created us. He knows how much we need generosity in our life. And, and the farmer in the parable missed this by 180 degrees. He's so out of touch with that reality. And I'll, I'll tell you what reality is. In just a minute, when we take up the offering, you're going to read a scripture in just a minute talking about who God is and out of who God is. That's why... We give in, in tithes and offerings the way that we do. The farmer looked at his abundance, though, and he said the opposite of what God says every day, uh, where every morning God says, I'm going to give you life again. Son, come up. Wake up. Here's new breath for you. Every day is a gift out of a, the heart of a generous God. And, and, and the farmer was saying the opposite in this text. He proposed He's going to keep it all to himself, hold it to himself, which is a surefire way to miss the deepest, most important thing in life. Uh, Just as there is great delight in understanding and recognizing that you didn't get everything on your own, there is also, y'all, great delight in sharing what we have with other people. I, I know a wonderful farmer who did the exact opposite of the farmer in this text. Um, this past April, this particular farmer also received a bumper crop. Best crop he's ever received his whole life. I mean, it was huge. Uh, a, a massive crop for him in, in, in their little farm that they have. Now, in comparison to others, it may not have been, but for him, it was massive. And in that harvest, what he did was he said, what am I going to do with my massive strawberry crop and what he decided to do was invite all of the relatives all of the people who had any little bitty hand in it to come and to celebrate and share in all of it Um, the farmer is is Megan's dad and on our strawberry farm this past year of all of the years growing strawberries we had a crop that was just incredible for us Only God could have done it. And that's the neat thing because Mr. Bates, Will Bates, recognized, and Ann Bates' wife did too, that they didn't create all of this. And so what they did is they invited people to come and they had a party. And at the party, y'all know what we did? We sang praises to God. We worshiped the Lord. And then he gave a gift, a financial gift, a way of, of including everybody in the great celebration of it. I had a little nephew He's probably about oh, 10 years old or something. He may have come out, and in the whole season, we work from October all the way to April. He worked one day for probably about two hours. He's invited to the party. This little boy shows up, sitting down in a chair. Mr. Bates walks over to him and gives him $100 sticks out his hand and he says, son, thank you. You are a part of all of this. You're a big part of it. So that's the difference, don't you think? I think so. I think that's the difference. I think that's somebody who understood. I think that that's the opposite of the rich fool. In the end, when God judged the man in the parable to be a fool, I think it broke his heart. It made God sad. God doesn't want him to be a fool, and he doesn't want you to be a fool either. It breaks God's heart when we're a fool. He had missed what it meant to be a human being, and I know this, I know it, I know it, that when we are generous and when we give, like in tithes and offerings, like to other people who are in need, when we give to those things, it makes you more of a human being. It's not somebody trying to steal from you or hurt you. It's, 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 that's the way you become whole, and it's the way you have life. And it's so sad when we don't. It's sad that this foolish man deprived other people from the great joy of giving to them. And it makes me wonder that really what he should be called is not the rich fool, but the poor fool because he was impoverished in the things that really matter. So, please remember this, and the way the parable ends is that in the end, we all get separated from the things that matter, uh, the things that we possess. In the end, we all get separated. The rich fool finds out from Jesus when, Jesus when God said, when you die, who's going to get all of this stuff that you have loved so much? Death makes everybody generous. You have two choices just as I do, we can either be generous here on earth or we can be generous at death, but death is gonna make you generous. You can't do anything about that, it is. Now somebody is going to say, well Ross, when I die, I'm just not gonna care anymore, I beg to differ. I think that when you die, you're gonna care more about whether or not you are generous on this earth than you think you will. When you face the Lord, you're gonna care more about whether or not you are generous, and so you're going to be generous regardless. So God says, don't be a fool. Be generous now. Be generous now. There's an old story, um, and I'll finish with this, an old story about a, uh, a man who had a dream, and he went to both heaven and hell in the dream. And, uh, and, and the thing that he discovered was that in both places, um, the people had an issue, and that is they could not um, uh, bend their elbows, so their elbows were stiff, and both heaven and hell, they couldn't move their elbows. And so he went down to hell, and he saw everybody, and they couldn't move their elbows. And everybody had big hands full of, a handful of bread. But the problem was is that they couldn't bend their elbows to feed themselves, but they were never, ever going to give the bread to somebody else because it was their bread. So they were hiding it and holding it, and they were never going to give it, and so there was a misery to all of it. That there was a there was food to eat but nobody was going to share it and you couldn't eat it yourself either and then in the dream the person was taken to heaven where people had the exact same issue and they also couldn't move their elbows either but in heaven they found a way to figure it out and what they would do is even though they couldn't eat it themselves they found that if they would offer it to somebody else they could help somebody else eat and even though it was a risk they took the risk and they offered it in great generosity to somebody else and then that person would offer their bread to this person as well. And they found a way to live in a harmony in a community of generosity. And in the end, the man discovered, you know what the real difference in heaven and hell is? Generosity. And that will be the difference in the heaven and hell on this earth too for you. You can live like hell or you can live like heaven. And so in the end, I hope and I pray that generosity will be what you, what you demonstrate. And I think, y'all, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make in Luke 12 when he talks about this. And that's the story, and I hope that it changes your life.
0: You've been listening to the Audio Sermon Podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.